0: Welcome to episode 161 of the FredCast Cycling Podcast for July 1st, 2010. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. In this week's episode of the FredCast, reporting on the Los Angeles police participating in critical mass. Cyclists rallying against Black Hawk bike prohibitions, a product recall, some pro cycling news, and uh uh-oh, a Minnesota bike share causes debit card overdrafts. Following the news, our first in several shows with content from Press Camp Deer Valley 2010, plus pot safe cycling music. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike, well, hammer just a little bit harder because here comes the Fred Fredcast. fellow Freds, welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast. Great to have you here with us. Hey, if you've been following along on Twitter or Facebook or on the website, you know that last weekend we participated in the Utah Bike MS event up in lovely Cache Valley, Utah, starting in Logan. And Going all over the Cache Valley, it was a great event. We did a uh, hundred miles on day one, and that includes my wife Donna, who has MS herself, and this was her first century. So congratulations to her. And there is a video on the website, sort of commemorating that occasion. Uh, and then, of course, on day two we did 75 miles, so 175 miles on the weekend raised a bit of money for MS. And I want to thank those of you who have donated, but. There is still time for those of you who haven't. Just go to tinyurl.com fredsagainstms. We have till July 30th to bring in as much money as possible. I sure would appreciate your support on that. And once again, I thank those of you who have already donated to help us find the cause and cure of multiple sclerosis well let's get right into the news for this episode of the fredcast starting with something that we talked about last week on the show and that was the fact that the los angeles police department announced that they were going to participate in critical mass in the city of la last friday and this in response to that videotaped incident that we've talked about here on the show several times already and if you're wondering how that went and whether or not well there was animosity or perhaps any problems as a result. Let me read to you from the blog that appeared on City Watch in Los Angeles. And it says, it's not often that the streets of Los Angeles are filled with shouts of thank you and happy Friday. But when dozens of LAPD bike officers joined hundreds of cyclists on Friday's critical mass ride, an amazing thing happened. Mass civility broke out, and the LAPD set a new standard for respect that drew cheers of support from from pedestrians, motorists, and cyclists, most of all from the cyclists. Damian Newton from Streets Blog said that the night was, quote, an overwhelming success. uh, Continuing, for one night, the fractured bicycling advocacy community put aside its own internal divisions and rode as one. Commander Jorge Viegas, according to the LAist report, said the ride was a success from the police department's perspective, continuing, quote, we learned a lot and will use the lessons learned to be even better prepared. We look forward to our continued relationship slash partnership. With this partnership, I'm hopeful that we will continue to work on our short and long range issues. So sounds like this was a great thing that actually happened. You know, sometimes from bad things, good things can happen. And it's nice to see that the LAPD is putting their money where their their mouth is or putting the rubber to the road, very different from what happened in the city of New York when they had their highly publicized critical mass event. You've all heard me talk about that and you've seen the videos on that before. But isn't it great to see... Uh, That here's a metropolitan police department, one of the largest cities in the world, looking at their relationships with cyclists and with pedestrians and motorists and saying, you know, we can do better and really going out there and making the effort. I hope that this continues uh, and I hope that the relationship that they've begun fosters and grows and only helps the bicycle community in the city of LA and perhaps other cities around the nation and indeed around the world. Several hundred miles away, as the crow flies from Los Angeles, sits Little Blackhawk, Colorado. The city of Blackhawk has decided, as we discussed last week, that, well, if you're riding your bicycle, you're just going to have to get off and walk through many of the main streets and roads in the town. And if you don't, you risk being fined $68 by their police, their local constabulary. As we discussed last week, Bicycle Colorado and many concerned citizens in Colorado are upset about this. And on Tuesday, dozens of them went to the state capitol in Colorado at a rally hosted by Bicycle Colorado to protest Blackhawks' ban on bicycling through most of the town's roads. And this is the only ban like that in Colorado. Now, of course, city officials believe that because of Colorado's three-foot passing law, that their streets simply aren't wide enough to allow bicycles and cars on the same road. City manager Mike Kopp said, We're not saying you can't enter town. You just have to dismount your bike and walk through it. We feel strongly about this well so did the dozens of cyclists and other concerned citizens who went to the state capitol to say no this will not stand because quite frankly if you've been to colorado you know that there are a lot of small towns like blackhawk and for that matter like old town park city here in utah where we have very narrow streets as well but we and those other small towns in colorado have not banned bicycles on the streets according to an article that i read they quoted Pete Lorena of Thornton, Colorado, who rides 300 miles per week, as saying, quote, you can't revoke my right to ride my bike. Continuing, honestly, dismount takes up a lot more space and cars have to increase their speed to pass me. What's great, and perhaps, hopefully, through this show and other media and new media sites, Bicycle Colorado says they're hearing from people all over the globe. Quote, we're hearing from bicyclists from England, Thailand, Australia, who are asking how a city cannot let bicycles through. This according to Dan Grunig, executive director of Bicycle Colorado. Other mountain towns with narrow streets get along fine, he said. Bicyclists don't inflict injuries on motorized drivers. All I can say, folks, is keep the pressure up. I even heard from our local newspaper here in Park City, uh, one of the local newspapers, Park City Week, saying, have you heard about this, David? This is crazy and it should not stand. So I hope all of you will keep your pressure up and hopefully affect some change in Black Hawk, Colorado well unfortunately it's that time of the show and this happens every few weeks when i've got to report on a product recall and yeah i know that some of you don't like this but you know i think that this news is too important and must get out there to in order to avoid injuries uh, among those of us who are riding our bikes so bear with me folks or listen to the aac edition and go ahead and skip this chapter if this isn't something that you're interested in however I'm going to bet that if you've got a 2009 model felt bicycle, B12, B16, or S32, you're going to want to stay tuned. And that's because the Consumer Product Safety Commission, in cooperation with felt bicycles, has announced a recall of about 2,100 felt bicycles. The problem here is, and we've heard this before on other instances of recall the bike's fork steerer tube can break of course causing the rider to lose control fall and suffer injuries and felt has received seven reports of broken forks with minor injuries including bumps and bruises the recall includes all 2009 felt model b12 b16 and s32 road bikes and here is how you can identify them the 2009 b12 are gloss silver and carbon and have carbon fiber frames with carbon fiber forks and aluminum steerer tubes. The B16 are matte black and red with carbon fiber frames and carbon fiber forks with aluminum steerer tubes. The S32 are available in gloss white and red and have aluminum frames with carbon fiber forks and aluminum steerer tubes. They were sold in bicycle specialty stores from October 2008 through May 2010 for about $2,300 or $3,100 per bicycle. As always, stop using the bike immediately and contact your local Felt Bike dealer to receive a free inspection and repair. For more information, call Felt Bicycles directly, toll free at 866-433-5887. That's 866-433-5887 or 866-4-Felt-US. Or go to the links that are in the show notes For this week's show, this is show number 161. Well, I don't know how it snuck up on us, but in case you've been under a rock, Saturday, the Tour de France 2010 kicks off with a prologue in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. It's going to be a great three weeks of racing. I, for one, am really looking forward to it. In case you missed, Lance Armstrong tweeted earlier this week saying that this will be his final Tour de France, and I've got a link to that tweet in the show notes for this week. Still, lots to talk about with the Tour de France coming up. The team presentations were today, and now everyone is gearing up for Saturday's prologue. Now, I think it comes as no secret to you who my favorite team in this year's event is. It's Team Saxo Bank. But being an American, I have to mention that this is the first Tour de France that is going to have four American teams in the race, including Lance Armstrong's Team Radio Shack, Team BMC, Garmin Transitions, and HTC Columbia. And looking at the starting rosters for this year's race, there are eight American individual racers in the event, including Lance Armstrong, Brent Bookwalter, Tyler Farah, George Hincappy, Chris Horner, Levi Leipheimer, Christian Vandevelde, and Dave Zabriskie. Now, countries with the most racers in this year's event France has 35, Spain 32, Italy 17, Germany 15, Belgium 13, Australia, 11. The United Kingdom has eight. The Netherlands has eight. The United States, as I mentioned earlier, has eight. Russia, six. Denmark, five. Switzerland, five. Slovenia, four. Austria, three. Belarus, three. Kazakhstan, three. Portugal, three. Ukraine, three. Canada, two. Luxembourg, two. Two brothers, by the way. Norway, two. And the Czech Republic, Estonia, Ireland, Japan, Lithuania, Moldova, New Zealand, Poland, Sweden and South Africa all have one racer in this year's Tour de France. And speaking of those two brothers from Luxembourg, rumors are swirling all over the world of professional cycling that Andy and Frank Schleck will be leaving. Bjarne Reese's Reese Cycling, no matter what their title sponsor is in 2011, knowing full well that Saxo Bank is leaving. No matter who the title sponsor is, it looks like the Schleck brothers are planning to leave and join a Luxembourg-based team. Meanwhile, both Andy and Frank do have great potential to be on the podium as Andy was last year in second place behind Alberto Contador. Meanwhile, Bjarne Reese wants everyone to understand that whatever rumors are swirling about what happens to his team and what happens to the gentleman on his team this year, he doesn't want to talk about it right now, saying, quote, I want to make it clear before the tour starts that we're going to ride it as a team and not talk about these rumors for the whole three weeks. We have two riders, Andy and Frank, who can make it on a podium and possibly as one and two. And we have a team that's good on the flat and good in the mountains, a team with experience and gifted young riders. We're here to win the tour with possibly the strongest team in the tour ever. Now, despite the fact that this will be Lance's final tour, he is definitely going to be going all out. However, he is handicapping his chances a little bit. Following the tour of Switzerland, he was quoted as saying, quote, It will be very hard to win the tour. With my age and the explosiveness of the other guys, my own struggles with the time trials in the last couple of years will have to be smart to be a bit lucky to play the team card a little bit. There are a handful of guys who are bigger favorites than me. Among them, of course, the aforementioned Frank and Andy Schleck. Don't forget world champion Cadell Evans. How about... Giro d'Italia winner Ivan Basso, Lance's former teammate and winner of the Tour de France last year, Alberto Contador. The field this year is as competitive as I believe we have seen it in a number of years, and I am looking forward to watching the next three weeks of cycling, as I'm sure you are as well. So the question is, how do you Watch. Well, here in the United States, of course, the Tour de France is aired live with commercials on the Versus TV network. Versus also has an iPhone app. They've got a free app that doesn't include uh, any video, but they've got a paid app for $14.99, which gives you live video for every stage of the event in both 3G and Wi-Fi. And it's completely Commercial free $14.99 to me, not a bad deal. For those of you in other countries or who are looking for other places to view the Tour de France, perhaps on television or on your mobile device or on your computer, I always point people over to steephill.tv or cyclingfans.com. Both sites have excellent lists of places where you can watch the Tour de France, and I'll make sure to put links in the show notes. And no matter how many times I mention those sites, steephill.tv or cyclingfans.com, I am bound to get email. That's just fine. I'll be happy to let you know. Again, those two sites are a great resource for finding where you can watch the Tour de France and where you can get updates throughout the next three weeks of the most famous race in professional cycling, and perhaps the most difficult, demanding, and exciting athletic event in the world. Well, let's think back two years to the Tour de France. Uh, The 2008 Tour was rocked by doping controversy throughout three weeks of that event, including Who can forget Ricardo Rico skulking out of his hotel after having been accused of doping? And you may recall at the time that we talked about the fact that doping is a criminal offense in France. Well, now Ricardo Rico has been found guilty by a French court of a doping offense in the 2008 tour de France. A court in southwest France gave Rico a two-month suspended sentence and a $3,700 fine after finding him guilty of, quote, using a poisonous substance. Now, his lawyers argued that since he had already been convicted in Italy on similar charges, he shouldn't be penalized twice. That, therefore, will leave this case open for appeal. Rico, as you know, served his 20-month ban and has now returned to cycling. He's on the Ceramica Flaminia team. That team is not participating in this year's Tour de France. Several weeks ago, we also talked about Team BMC rider Thomas Fry from Switzerland. Switzerland's Olympic Committee said last Wednesday that Fry was caught in an out-of-competition test in March and then admitted doping on two other occasions. He has now been banned for two years for doping with EPO. He's suspended through April 21st, 2012, and was ordered by the Swiss Olympic Committee to pay 5,940 Swiss francs in fines and in costs. So yet another rider caught by what could be, well, depending on if you listen to Floyd Landis or not, a vastly improved drug doping regime. Well, that's going to do it for our professional cycling news. There's more news to come, but before we get to that, I want to thank one of my show sponsors, EpicPlanet.tv. I've talked before on the show about their Epic Rides DVDs. These are indoor training DVDs shot in brilliant clarity in fantastic locations around the world. And Epic Planet has just Released yet another great release, this one, the Epic Texas Hill Country DVD, taking riders through the hill country of Texas around San Antonio, a gorgeous, beautiful ride. And it has just been released and is available to you. And if you go now to buy this DVD by going to thefredcast.com and clicking on the link on the right-hand side of the page for Epic Planet. And if you use the promo code TEXAS at checkout, you're going to get $5 off the regular price on Epic Texas Hill Country. So go to www.thefredcast.com and click on the Epic Planet Epic Rides link and make sure you use the promo code TEXAS at checkout. We thank epic rides for supporting the fredcast and we thank you for supporting epic planet well moving along occasionally here on the fredcast i tell you about cities around the world that implement bike share programs and we talked recently about nice ride minnesota that's minneapolis's bike share program great program gave you the full outline of it So far, users have purchased more than 6,500 rides using Nice Ride Minnesota, and I've got a trip to Minneapolis coming up here soon, and I'm going to give it a try. But when I do, I'm going to be careful, and instead of using my debit card, I'm going to use a credit card, and here's the reason why. You might think that you've put your debit card into the kiosk to pay for a $5 ride, but because They have to authorize your card for a $250, essentially a security deposit. You'll get a $250 hold put on your bank account if you use a debit card. And that can cause a problem for you if you've got, say, $300 or $250 only in your bank account. Then you go to the grocery store later and you find, oops, it's as if you've been overdrawn. And that is exactly what has happened to some users in Minnesota. According to Jake Quarstad, Nice Rides outreach manager, he said, quote, if you're in college or around that age, that $250 could be a big chunk, if not all, of your money. That's absolutely true. And therefore, Nice Ride Minnesota is encouraging everyone to use a credit card. And in the coming days, they're going to modify their kiosks so that they won't take debit cards at all. But in the meantime, for those of you in Minneapolis who want to use this bike share program, please make sure you use your credit card. Well, at the top of the show, we talked about some law enforcement issues. The fact the LAPD is Participating in critical mass rides and of course we've talked before about how there's been a little bit of friction between cyclists and law enforcement in various areas across the country and indeed across the world. But if you live in and around the Bay Area of San Francisco, California, you're about to be very thankful for a program that law enforcement in that community is putting into place you see between 2006 and 2009 a study showed that there was a 53 percent increase in cycling in the city and as a result there has also been a corresponding increase in bicycle thefts police in the city of san francisco are now engaging in a high-tech sting Operation. They're going to be outfitting decoy bicycles with electronic transponders that will allow police to track those bicycles if they're stolen, hopefully all the way back to the hidden layers of the bicycle thieves. Because police there are thinking that the reason why there has been an increase in bicycle thefts isn't just because individuals are stealing the bikes, but that perhaps there are bicycle theft rings at work. According to Rene Rivera, acting executive director of the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, quote, we would have a chance through tracking bikes to get to the people who are buying and selling as opposed to the person who is stealing a bike here and there. Great idea, great way to get at cycling bicycle theft rings and hopefully ensure that cyclists in the Bay Area, when they leave their bikes at a bike rack, It's going to be there when they return. On the other end of the United States, meanwhile, down in Key West, Florida, police are now beginning to go after cycling scofflaws. According to Police Chief Donnie Lee, quote, Everyone who traverses the streets of Key West... Has observed bicyclists disregarding the rules of the road. It's a serious problem in the community, and we've stepped up our efforts to try and prevent injuries before they happen. Now, they started with a community-wide education program, but now they are going to specifically target cycling scofflaws with citations, with fines ranging from $64.50, for an offense such as passing a car on the right, up to $231 for running a red light. According to Jesse Domian, manager of the bike shop, he thinks that education is really what's most important, saying, quote, the idea of them just doing tickets now and that's it. As far as that's going to solve the problem, it's not going to work. Island Bicycle's owner Aaron Shipley said, quote, I think some of those are good things, although the fines are a little stiff. And meanwhile, Carl Harper, a delivery person and a mechanic at Recycle, said that he felt that lower fees would be equally effective, saying, quote, I feel that it should be enforced, but maybe the prices of the tickets might be a little excessive. But if the police officers use their discretion the way they should, then I think that it's a good thing. And finally, tonight comes this story about a bank robber who's masquerading as a bike messenger and who's being fairly successful at the same time. Now, this story comes to us from Santa Cruz, California, where the serial bandit struck again on Monday afternoon holding up a bank in Santa Cruz, California. According to police spokesman Zach Friend, quote, he rolled in on a bike. We spoke to the FBI, and they believe he's associated with other robberies in the San Francisco area. It could be just an easy transportation point to a vehicle. So it's quite possible there's a vehicle parked in the neighborhood. According to investigators, the suspect entered the bank wearing a helmet and carrying a black messenger bag. He handed the teller a note demanding money and said he had a weapon, and he left with an undisclosed amount of money. The police spokesman continued saying, quote, it's one of those things where the teller was legitimately scared. If somebody comes up to the front and says they have a gun, that's a very traumatic experience. The teller did everything she was supposed to do. The suspect was last seen pedaling away from the bank, according to the spokesman, and he said that the bike may give the criminal an advantage, saying, quote, it affords greater opportunity of entering into smaller areas, alleys, hiding in driveways. It makes the suspect smaller than a vehicle would. Now, the bank robber is described as a white male in his 40s with brown hair, about six foot one and about 170 pounds. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Santa Cruz Police Department. I, for one, am just hoping that this does not mean that every bike messenger in the Bay Area is now going to be a suspect in a bank robbery. And with that, here ends the news for this episode of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. Well, before we move on to the features for this week's episode of the Fredcast, I want to thank another one of our sponsors, and that is Jensen USA. Go to JensenUSA.com slash the Fredcast. Jensen USA is having their seven-day 4th of July sale. It's going on right now with great discounts and amazing prices on hundreds of items throughout their store. I got a great email earlier this week from listener Mark who told me that after his previous tires were discontinued by another online retailer whose name I shall not mention, I remembered your Jensen sponsor and used the link on your page to find a great deal on 23C Kevlar tires. Thanks for the recommendation. Hey. You know what, Mark? You're very, very welcome. I'm glad you had a great experience and were able to get a great deal at Jensen USA. And Mark's email is just one of the many that I've received from lots of Fredcast listeners saying, hey, thanks for the tip about Jensen USA. You're right. They've got a great selection. They've got great prices. And most of all, they've got great customer service. But you know what? Don't listen to Mark and those other listeners. Find out for yourself. You try Jensen USA just once. I'm pretty sure you're going to continue working with them. Once again, go to jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast. Start trying Jensen USA today. I know you'll be pleased. We thank Jensen USA so much for their support of the Fredcast, and we thank you for your support of Jensen USA. Well, today's feature section is going to include a number of interviews from an event that I attended last week here in Deer Valley, Utah, called Bike Press Camp. Press Camp is an opportunity for manufacturers to get together in an intimate setting with the media in cycling and, in general, outdoor uh, publications and websites where they can get together before the major trade show season to go over new products uh, not only in one-to-one meetings but also to allow the editors of these various media properties to go out and try these products on the roads and trails here in park city it was an honor and a privilege to have been invited this year i met some fantastic peers in the cycling and active sports media and I also had the opportunity to uh, review and try out a number of new products that will be hitting your store shelves very, very soon. So to start off our coverage from Press Camp, I had the opportunity to sit down and speak with Lance Kamisaska from Lifeboat Events. Lance, formerly of Inter... Well, you know what? I'll let Lance tell you his story but i want you to know that not only are you going to hear from lance but you're also going to hear from a number of manufacturers and i will be sharing these interviews with you over the next couple of shows because i have many of them and i think that you'll find them all very interesting so here's the founder of press camp and the president of lifeboat events lance kamasaska i'm talking now with lance kamasaska lance is the president of lifeboat events lifeboat events is the company that puts on press camp and Lance, before we get into press camp or lifeboat, you've been in the bike business a long time. I remember when you were at Interbike and the feeling that your history goes back even farther than that. So tell everybody, how'd you get into the bike business and how did you get to this point?
1: Sure. Well, it's a pretty long tale, but I'll, I'll try to be concise. Um, I started in the bike industry as a kid, uh, working in a retail store because I was supporting my race habit at the time and c- couldn't afford to buy the bikes that I needed to compete. But I worked in the local bike shop. Uh, when I graduated high school, I went on to college. Where was it? This is all back in New Jersey. So I was living in northern New Jersey, a great bike shop called Ridgewood Cycle, and uh, had a great experience growing up in that town and growing up in that bike shop. Went on to college, came back, and decided that I still wanted to have a career in the bike industry. So I went right back to the bike shop that I grew up in as a kid, essentially, um, and went on to manage one of their satellite stores. And it had a great experience, but I wanted, uh, California was calling, so I decided to move to California. My family had already relocated to California, and I uh, was really lucky enough to walk into Two Wheel Transit Authority, legendary store in Huntington Beach at the time, 401 Main Street was the address, and uh, met a guy that believed in a little bit of a resume I had that I could be something with that store, and I went on to be the store manager. And, and after two years of 70-hour weeks and a lot of work, I thought, you know, this is about as best retail could possibly be is it's a legendary store we had people coming from all over the world to see it it was so ahead of its time in terms of merchandising and, and buying and and really carrying you know top shelf product uh i said i'm going to take a few steps back and get into the bike industry from the wholesale end and i was offered a job with suntour as a kind of a, a regional account executive back in new jersey so i went back to new jersey and worked with suntour for just two years and the kind of the fun part of this story is, Suntour uh, and Fuji were cousins essentially, not not in any way, but financially, but they were very very close. And every Fuji bike had Suntour components on it. So we even had uh, holiday parties that were shared. And I was at the salad bar one day, uh, one one holiday party, and they offered me a job at the Fuji company and it was a little bit awkward obviously because two Japanese companies you don't kind of do that thing but uh, we long story short was we were able to come up with a a clever way for me to get involved with uh, with Fuji so I was with Fuji then this is going back in the 80s for seven years uh, and I left there as a vice president of sales and marketing and uh, in California because they opened up a California location and then the phone rang one day and it was a dear friend of mine Art Wester who used to be the president of Mavic and he said hey Lance and we grew up together in the same town raced together Uh, in fact he was the one that brought me to all the bike races because I didn't even drive and he said "Uh, we're going to take Mavic dealer direct and I'd like you to spearhead that and I thought that's really cool I always thought the Mavic wheels and rims were were first class and it was a French company it was kind of sexy and I, I decided to take that opportunity so back across country again landed in Westchester Pennsylvania and uh, worked for four years with Mavic uh, taking them dealer direct I uh, was national sales manager and finally they, they they were purchased by Solomon and they were moving up to Boston and I decided I didn't want to move to Boston I really was longing to get back to California so I came to California and my brother was already relocated there, and he's in the automotive industry. And I, for the first time in my entire life, I stepped out of the bike industry and decided to work with him because his company was growing really, really quickly, and he needed some support. So I worked with him for a year, and it drove me nuts. Um, I love my brother, uh, but you know, watching the tour and watching the yellow cars go by, the cars I used to sit in, and you know, attending Interbike at that time when I was out of the bike industry for one year just about lost my mind. And a friend of mine said, hey, Interbike is looking for, uh, at the time, really, it was a national sales manager. And I thought, that's really cool. Because i first of all, I always thought Interbike was a great event. Mm -hmm. I was an exhibitor there for 13 years. um, And what a cool position where you could be helping and supporting and partnering with, essentially, the whole bike industry. And you're working with everybody. Uh, So I applied for the job. Obviously, I got it. Uh, Within a short time, I became a show director. And 10 years later... uh, I, I finally left, but I decided at that time that I reached the top of my plateau there as well, and I really wanted to do something with all those years of experience, both in retail manufacturing distribution uh running you know the world 's largest trade show. I thought I could take that and maybe be a consultant or just try to help people. My focus really was I saw so many bike brands and and other manufacturers actually coming to Interbike and other events Seattle classic Eurobike, whatever the case was. And I thought just doing a really poor job of it. And I Mm -hmm. thought they were spending money uh, inappropriately or maybe not getting the best bang for their buck and making silly mistakes and making booths that were three stories high that weighed so much in weight. They were spending all their budget on drayage and not getting people to their booth. And I thought I could probably just consult with people and see if um, I could be of some help. So when I made my announcement that I was leaving and forming a company at that time called Lifeboat Solutions, Mm -hmm. Uh, My first customer, oddly enough, completely by random accident, was Interbike. Mm. Interbike came to me and said, look, we appreciate what you're doing and where you're going, but we need you to try to help us stay on track. So I thought that was a fantastic way to launch my new business. And uh, so I consulted with Interbike for two years. But in my heart, I knew that doing events would be where I'd want to go. So here we are now, uh, essentially in 2000. Well, we should probably go back one year. 2009 is when the idea came about to do press camp. And... uh, I have a long tale, but I'll just say it kind of briefly that uh, my dear friend and, and now a partner Chris Zygmunt and I had been saying over the years that we we recognize that there was a lot of media launches taking place midsummer the big major a companies had the you know they create their own weather they can they can call the media in and the media will come but there was so many B tier companies great brands great stories to tell who didn't command the same you know media attention and if, even if they did uh, the editors at that time, and, and, and continues today, have so many options midsummer that it's almost impossible for them. As much as they may like a brand and would want to go on, a, on an epic ride and, and cover the products, they might have 12 of those to attend to. So, Chris and I started looking at it and said, why don't we just try to corral that activity? Put all these B-tier companies, and if A-tier companies want to come, all the power to them. In fact, we have one here today, which is exciting, but uh, we thought if we could corral that activity and put them all in one place, and then call the media and say, look, now we're going to make it easy for you guys too. You can come in and pick off, you know, 12 to 20 brands at one time over three or four days in a sexy location, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. So, but I didn't launch, launch that idea until I got on the phone. So in December of 2007, no, 2008, excuse me, I picked up the phone and I literally called 25 of the bigger editors, uh, both vertical and non-endemic and said, if we put together this little corral camp. What do you think? And literally 25 out of 25 said, you, you create that thing, we're coming. And in fact, some of them went to the extent of saying, you should see my schedule. You want to hear my schedule, Lance? <laughs> I'll show you your schedule. And they would read to me what they were invited to at that time. And, I, and my first reaction was, how in the hell do you do that? And they said, well, we don't. We, keep, we have to pick and choose. And it's really sad that somebody gets left out, but we just can't physically see all these brands that are launching products for us to see pre-fall show. So anyway, Press Cap obviously uh, was a success in 2009, and uh, yeah, we immediately re- responded with announcing 2010. Uh, 2009 was in Sun Valley. Great. Uh, results however a little difficult to get to Uh, the riding was a bit more dispersed Uh, didn't have everything compacted into one area where you had a lot of continuity and a lot of uh, you know energy I think it was sad when we saw road riders go one way and downhillers go a different way and we were using different guys and and we were were actually shuttling people to those rides the the camp would lose the energy and then we'd have to try to reassemble the energy in the evenings so uh, we felt coming here to Deer Valley was, was key. I want to talk about that energy
0: because you talked about it a little bit last night uh, in sort of our opening session, and you said that there are really sort of three elements to press camp that make it successful. Explain
1: that. Sure. Well, I mean, for, obvious thing is when you come to an epic location, everybody wants to ride, uh, but riding um, almost, ironically, is almost a smaller part of it. I think the face time and really having uh, an ability to sit down and get to know an editor is really key to a lot of these marketing managers and PR people. Mm-hmm so we thought let's divide the camp into three components we'll have face time one-on-one time as we call it we'll have the ride time certainly you got to ride the products and you got to enjoy the beautiful uh areas that we've chosen and then you have to have networking where it's not structured and you can rub elbows and just you know have a beer with somebody and get to know them Uh, So when we designed PressCamp the first time around, we we chose those three components, and that was kind of the blueprint, and launched the event and and came back at the end and actually conducted a lot of post-event surveys with uh, the editors and the different manufacturers. And I was so thrilled that that strategy worked because a lot of people said, I never knew this editor. Not only do I know him now, I have his cell phone, I have his business card. I'm going to follow up and call him, and we're going to get together and meet again. And so I knew that even if they didn't get all the time they needed at the camp or whatever. It was more about the networking, more about, this, about that one-on-one getting to know people. That was really, really a, a key part of what we did. So we, did, we weren't stupid. We thought, hey, we got something here in 2010. We'll use that blueprint and go with it again.
0: And, and I've really seen the results of that. Um, I saw it last night. I saw it during the day today. Uh, those people who were at press camp last year, both manufacturers and editors, uh, there is a bond that formed because look we can all go to interbike and we can all walk the aisles and go from place to place but when you're together in a concentrated environment like this, you really do form a friendship uh, and a bond that I think can be lasting and mutually beneficial.
1: I totally agree. In fact, it it was really almost heartwarming for me last night to see everybody arrive and I saw hugs and kisses going around between editors and and different manufacturers that I I believe were created in part, at least to our press camp in 2009. So yeah, it's it's about relationships and it's about being able to call an editor and say, I have something you need to see. And and I think a a lot of the people that attended the camp last year never helped never felt like they had that kind of relationship to do that. So it was important. And
0: and having been in product myself, I know that those were relationships that I would have treasured uh, to have. I I, I remember, Ooh, it's gotta be 15 or 18 years ago. Now mountain biking magazine did a deal where they, they, they wanted to have a captive audience with manufacturers. They invited a bunch of us to Whistler and we did a similar sort of, 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 of an event. And those bonds, some of those bonds remain to this day. It's really amazing. And I think that that's what you're really fostering here.
1: Yeah, you know, it really is true. And I, I should probably should have prefaced all this by saying what we're doing isn't rocket science. You know, people have uh, a need and a want to be, you know, friends. And, and this industry is very tight. Uh, all we're trying to do is roll out a platform that works well with the right amount of each of those three components so that it's a good balance and it works. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I've noticed is, you know, you've got print editors, you've got web editors, you've got new media people like me. And... Some of us compete, some of us don't, but even those that compete, they're sitting down with each other having a beer and just
1: chatting. And that really is unique, isn't it? It truly is. And In fact, even one step further, to see that they team up sometimes and go to these one-on-one meetings, which become you know, two-on-one or whatever, right. uh, is pretty interesting because they, they don't feel as, as if the, the competitive part of this thing is, is really here. It's, it's pretty exciting. Right. Now, you've taken
0: the press camp concept and you're expanding it. You're doing dealer camp, again, here in Deer Valley, uh, in just about a month, month and a half from now. What's the concept behind that, and how will it work? Who's invited?
1: Sure. Um, Well, essentially, after doing press camp and attending uh, Interbike and also just being on the phones with all the different people in the industry, uh, a lot of people said, hey, Lance, that blueprint is really cool. Why are you only doing it for the media? Why don't you do it for retailers? sat back and looked at the landscape and and began to realize that the media were coming in in June to get their product previews and look at what's coming in in the the, the next year and getting it in a timely manner so they can put it into print or web or whatever the case may be to kind of give momentum to the fall trade shows. Um, But, you know, obviously we were seeing the retailers doing the same thing, the big brands, the A-tier brands, almost the same story as I told you earlier. We're doing the same with the retailers. And we thought, well, we're beginning to see the same thing we're seeing retailers scrambling in july to attend a lot of these mini camps why don't we corral them and do kind of the same thing and the twist was we wanted to make those brands that are going to attend our event feel like it's their event and let them be a part of the process of bringing in the retailers and let them provide the list to us and we'll cover the cost of the retailers to come in we're subsidizing their travel providing free lodging so in, in essence they're they're kind of replicating what the big brands are doing But we're doing it for the up-and-coming B-tier brands, and they have the same exciting stories and the same exciting products to launch. So
0: So you mentioned when you you started Press Camp and you started talking to editors, unanimous, everybody wanted to go. What has been the response of the manufacturers, and what has been the response of the dealers to Dealer Camp?
1: Well, I'll be really honest. I mean, I think the manufacturers got it right away, and they were very excited about the concept. But they were a little leery about retailers uh, having the ability to leave their stores at a time that was kind of unheard of. But I quickly pointed to the, you know, the other situations that were already in existence. We had many of, the, uh, of those brands running out to meet road shows, running out to uh, different events. And, and I felt that this wasn't an important enough event at the right time. And the timing's really everything. If they could see products that would help them uh, do a better job in their retail environment, or if the manufacturers could get the feedback to really begin to adjust their fourth quarters and, and look down their horizon in a sharper way. Um, whether they are going to be a little strapped in their store or whatever the case might be, those concerns, they can work through those. And and lo and behold, our registrations moving up very nicely. And I've had dealers who told me uh, up front uh, in the original concept, and we were discussing this with different people, I'm not sure I can do this, who have now registered and are bringing other people in their store. So Mm -hmm. I, I know... Doing the right thing at the right time, doing it in the right environment, keeping the cost down, keeping the return on investment high, uh, supersedes or certainly uh, puts some of those concerns about leaving their store completely behind them. How many
0: dealers are you expecting? Are you looking for more dealers to register?
1: Well, we're we're, we're not being too ambitious. Uh, The subsidy program is designed to uh, provide subsidy for 100 retail businesses, and every one of those businesses can bring up to two people. Um, So right off the bat, if we spend our subsidy, which we plan to do entirely, we'll have 100 businesses subsidized up to 200 retailers if they bring you know 1.7 average we'll have you know 170 but you know that's that's the bottom line that's the return on investment uh that we've promised to the suppliers and manufacturers that are going to participate Now, having said that, we've opened up registration to any qualified dealer, and if they want to drive in, fly in, we have dealers coming from faraway places who are coming on their own dime. Again, they see the value proposition for them. Um, And I think at the end of the day, when we get to our, our goal with the subsidy list and we get to just the open registration, we'll probably have about 250 retailers representing, I'm going to say at this point, about 150 businesses. And for us, that's beyond our dream. I mean, our dream was just to do the hundred. So we'll, we'll be really pleased with that. I think we'll offer a really solid return on investment for everybody involved and we'll see where it goes. I mean, if this timing thing, which is a big thing in the industry right now, really uh, proves that July to August time frame is r- where things are going, you know, we have great potential to grow and we're really pleased to be in Deer Valley. Uh, it, they're very welcoming. I, I made those remarks at our lunch today uh, to feel the love and feel people that really want to see uh, the cycling industry come here and enjoy their culture, which is very cycling culture. It it's really nice. Yeah.
0: Where do you see the future for the two events in the coming years? Where would you like... At what level would you like to see these events uh,
1: reach? Right. Well, I'll start with Press Camp. Press Camp actually has a ceiling. It can never be too big. If it got really big, it would be unruly. It would lose its intimate feature. Or um, it would or it'd have to be very long to keep it that way. I don't think anybody wants to be here too long. Everybody's very busy. So i Press. I'm happy to be here, by the way. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 15-minute drive. Yeah, for you it's great, but I think for the guys that come over from New Zealand, Absolutely for example, great. it could be a little tough for them. So um, I think this event, where it is now, is near its its capacity uh we have 90 or so 91 or two people here today if it goes to 100 and maybe a few more brands we probably could handle it but that's probably the ceiling i love the event frankly i probably shouldn't say this in the podcast it's not hugely profitable for us but i just love getting uh the opportunity to be with the editors from around the world endemic vertical non-endemic um and to be with some of the key manufacturers in our industry, it's a great event. We'll always try to do it, and uh, it is what it is right now, I think. Um, now, Dealer Camp's a whole nother story. I think the potential for that to grow and be a larger outdoor event where we, we maybe increase the amount of targeted companies that we can possibly subsidize um, you know, to add some more features to the event, maybe more education, you know, more, more work with advocacy. There's a lot of potential there. And it's really up to the industry. If this timing thing is really what we all think it may be, uh, more towards July and August, and you know, giving these retailers a better look down their their, their showroom floor about what's coming and so forth, it, it may be a better place. So we'll have to wait and see. Okay.
0: Question I'm just going to spring on you because it comes to mind. You started with the press. Yes. You went to the dealers.
1: Yes. Both of which
0: absolutely benefit consumers, um, directly and indirectly. Sure. Now comes a tough question. Have you thought about, A consumer camp.
1: Well, no doubt. I mean, uh, I'd be lying to you if I said otherwise. Um... What, I guess the question becomes whether Dealer Camp could evolve into having some consumer activity uh, a day following the event has been discussed already. Uh, I know even the officials here in Park City, Deer Valley, would, would welcome that and probably roll out the carpet for that segment, if you will. Uh, I, but we want to take smaller steps. So, so I think Dealer Camp has another year or two under its belt to become the true event that you know we have the vision for it to be. Um, and then I would love to entertain having a great consumer event. And I think this is the absolute perfect place to do it. So we'll see.
0: All right. For the dealers that are listening, and we do have dealers that listen to the show, if they're still interested in getting involved in Dealer Camp, where can they get information?
1: Yeah, it's really pretty simple. Um, BikeDealerCamp.com. Uh, is our website. Uh, all the information that we possibly could think of is on that website in terms of location and where to stay and, and the time of the event and the schedule and so forth. And of course, registration is for free. Any qualified retailer can go on and register. Love to have them. Have them check out uh, Deer Valley, how beautiful it is, and see some great key manufacturers and suppliers. That's great. Lance, thanks for having me, inviting me,
0: and thanks for coming on the show. I'm really glad you came. Thanks. Yeah. Okay, so that interview really sets the stage of what you're going to be hearing over the next couple of shows because I had the great opportunity to visit personally for 40 to 50 minutes with individual manufacturers and to go over their new product offerings and to bring those product offerings to you. Now, once again, for those of you who are dealers, remember, Dealer Camp is coming up, and you can, of course, sign up on the website that Lance mentioned. But for those of you who are consumers, get ready for some great product information. All right, so let's get things kicked off with the very first interview that I did in my very first meeting at Press Camp, and this is with Speed Play Pedals. Well, now we're in the Speed Play apartment here at uh, Press Camp, and I'm with Jason Thorpe and Richard Bryan, and we're looking at just a wide variety of pedals. And for a lot of you I think that they may be a unique shape and something that maybe you 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 looked at and didn't quite understand. And let's talk a little bit about the genesis of the speed play design, because I think a lot of people are are used to that look, sort of ski binding design. Tell me where Speedplay came up with the idea, and what makes it unique, and what makes it better.
2: Sure, you know the the Speedplay Zero pedal came from a lot of Richard's experience with clipless pedals, with you know pedals over over time in his racing career, um, you know, and looking for looking for solutions to challenges that he was having, whether it was with knee pain or um, some concern about function of pedals that were on the market, and you know those those thoughts led him to creating what's probably the most commercially viable design ever that was kind of specifically made for bikes from the outset so not not a ski binding type design but something that um you are know, thinking was hey what what makes for the most ease of entry what makes for the most uh secure and stable fitting what allows the most ergonomic options and really in a, in a cycling context trying to answer those questions and you know the zero is uh very visually distinct from the other pedals because of that process that thought process and that design process but you know the end result is something that uh, dollar for dollar is the lightest weight um, offers the most cornering clearance is the most aerodynamic and offers the broadest range of adjustment in terms of rider to bike interface Um, so there, there are a lot of because of the thought that he put into it there are a lot of distinct advantages with the zero pedal and it's a big part of why it's gaining increasing acceptance in the pro peloton and in the market now you talked about ease of entry. Uh, I think most of us are, are familiar with the look style
0: uh, entry. Your toe goes in first. You push down on your heel. Tell me about getting into and out of a speed play pedal.
2: Yeah, there's, uh, there's there's less process to it, I guess. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot like any other bike pedal in that you step down on it and you go, and it, it clips in at that point. I mean, everything about it is designed. You know that. The cleat shape is designed basically to funnel onto the pedal. Everything is appropriately tapered to kind of guide that process. And um, for people that have ridden a look-type pedal for a long time, there's kind of an unlearning curve, I guess you would call it, where you get away from doing the toe-down thing and all that and just get back to what you did when you were a kid, which is step on your pedal and ride your bike.
0: So for somebody who's never used a clipless pedal before, and I know I still have listeners who are a bit afraid of it, um, a shorter learning curve...
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. There's no flipping the pedal over, there's no toe in, there's no finding the cleat. It really um if you if you have a general sense of where the ball of your foot is and know to put that on the pedal, it's going to kind of find itself from that point as long as you're, you know, just pushing straight down.
0: And because it's double-sided obviously, you don't like you said you don't have to worry about flipping
2: it over. It's all it's it's always right where you need it. Yeah, it's it's really it just kind of works. And it's funny, so we're having this we're having this whole conversation about it, but Um, if this had been the initial clipless pedal design, it's something that we never would have talked about. There's no, there would be no conversation about how do you get in? You would just ride your bike.
0: Now, Richard developed the pedal because of his racing experience. And now we're seeing more and more, as you said, of the pros in the pro peloton riding on your pedals, a lot of great results so far this year. What is it specifically that they tell you matters most to them? Why is it that they're requesting you? as opposed to using something that just happened to come from a sponsor or on their bike?
2: Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a combination of the performance benefits. I mean, you know, we we talked about, hey, light, lightweight, aerodynamics, good cornering clearance, you know, the best on the market. So some of those functional things that people measure and look for are there. But I think there's also this element of once people try it, um, it's kind of like the the clouds part and the light shines through in terms of the possibilities for bike fit and how comfortable they can be on the bike i mean these are guys that you know ride thousands of miles you know over the course of a season and um some of them have have had these career histories of of injury or discomfort on the bike and uh they all seem to have very high pain thresholds and some of them work through it at different levels than others but it's kind of this thing where they're like Wow, this feels really good, and it makes it very hard for them to move from that point to a different pedal system once they've become familiar with the options and the benefits of that have um, kind of ergonomic advantage.
0: Speaking of ergonomics, you you were showing me earlier about um, the way that you can uh, tailor the pedal system to the rider, much in the same way that somebody uh, can fit a bicycle. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, and there there are a couple elements to it. I mean, the basic the basic package when you get Cleaton pedal allows you independent control of all the, the main pedal adjustments. So you can adjust internal and external heel rotation independently of each other uh, fore aft and uh, lateral cleat placement. Um, we've also introduced what we call our ProFit case, which is uh, basically it's a, a resource and a toolkit for shops and bike fitters and coaches um, where it allows further adjustment. So it adjusts for uh, forefoot, varus, or valgus. Um, There are five different spindle lengths that allow you to adjust stance width even beyond what the normal cleat adjustment is. There's an extender plate that allows you to adjust fore-aft movement beyond what the normal range of adjustment is. And then um, shims to adjust for leg length discrepancy. So in total, it allows independent control of every possible adjustment that you could want between rider and bike at the shoe-pedal interface. Now... Let's talk
0: a little bit about cleats because I think people are, are who are on some of the other pedal systems out there, they're pretty familiar with replacing cleats on a fairly regular basis. What is it about your cleats that they'll notice over
2: time using them versus some of the competition? Um, I think it's you know it's, it's actually we should talk probably cleat and um, and pedal because there there are a couple of things going on. But but one just to answer your question directly about the cleat is that the the cleat engagement surface never comes in contact with the ground. So the surface of the cleat you walk on, um, yeah, it's going to get scratched up like anything else you drag over the pavement. But the part that actually engages the pedal never touches the ground. So that doesn't change from you kind of having normal use. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that's important, though, is the way the cleat engages the pedal. And it's once it clips in, there's a portion of the cleat that remains static around the outside of the pedal. And the rest of the cleat actually rotates around that piece. So what it does is eliminate pedal wear from the equation to a much larger degree than with any other system. So um, not only is there kind of, hey, this this is a system that has less cleat wear to begin with, you know, it eliminates that walking issue, it also reduces pedal wear by its design. That
0: makes sense. What are the pedals that you find the majority of the pro peloton on and... Uh, what are the pedals that you find your high-end consumers uh, are most suited to using?
2: Well it's, I mean overall you'd say it's the Zero pedal line. It offers the most adjustment, it offers all the features that we're talking about. Um, at the highest level we're talking about the nanogram version of the Zero, which um, per, per pair is hundred and twenty-four grams. Um, it can amount to a three-hole or a four-hole shoe. Um, it uses kind of all the hardware you'd expect, combinations of aluminum and titanium and um, you know if, if you compare that to anything else on the market it's it 's ridiculously light while still offering all the same features and benefits we 've discussed kind of
0: price point for that pedal
2: uh, close to six hundred dollars so it's it 's definitely not inexpensive, but you can get the same um, performance less the weight advantages um, down as as low as under two hundred dollars so let 's talk about that pedal because th- that way we sort of
0: look at the extremes so for a, for a two hundred dollar pedal, what can a consumer expect? Uh, when they put it on their bike, what kind of uh, weight? Are we still talking about the same exact features uh, of the pedal, just a different uh, uh, weight?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same same features, exact same adjustments available, um, same bearing designs. Uh, so we're looking at a few different options. The, the titanium is still, still over $200. It's at 164 grams. Um, stainless steel and then the chromoly pedal, which gets down closer to the $100 price point, is 216 grams. So it's still a remarkably lightweight pedal that offers all of the same performance benefits of any of the others in the line. And w- one of the other things that I noticed about speed plays is you can match them to your bike. <laughs> there, there are a lot of color options. And uh, you know, our, our favorite currently with uh, the Giro d'Italia win and Ivan Basso is uh, the, the pink, of course, is, uh, is fantastic right now. Excellent. Um, Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for taking
0: the time. If people want more information on Speedplay, where do you recommend they go? Speedplay.com. Excellent. Thanks so much, and uh, enjoy this wonderful day in Park City. Hey,
2: thank you very much.
0: Well, from high-end pedals to high-end bikes, it's now time for the interview that I did at Press Camp with the folks from Orbea. You may recall a few months ago, I tested an Orbea Orca that was loaned to me by our friend, Noreen Godfrey, who runs that team that we've profiled here on the show time after time. But I'm standing in Orbea's well suite here in Deer Valley. I'm talking to Tony Karklins. Tony is the managing director of Orbea USA, and we're looking at a bike that is literally hot off the factory floor. It's the brand new Orbea Orca. Still a sexy bike, but there's a lot of changes here. Take me briefly through what the thought process was in designing the new Orca. Okay.
3: Thank you very much. The, um, the core concept of designing the Orca was to take everything that we've learned from carbon road bike design, carbon TT bike and triathlon bike design, and our mountain bike design, and bring the absolute best of everything that we know into the new 2011 and Orca. 2011 Orca. One of the core principles in designing this bike was to improve the aerodynamics of the bike. We've done that in four areas. We've used a new aero seat post and seat tube design, which closes the gap between the seat tube and the rear wheel. Mm -hmm. We've reduced area and we've improved the aerodynamics in the head tube. And then we've also dramatically improved the aerodynamics by closing the gap between the fork blades and the front wheel and the seat and chain stays in the rear wheel. The combination of these four moves have reduced the aerodynamic drag by 65 grams, which translates to making this bike 14% faster than our current 2010 Orca in the market today.
0: Which is already a very fast bike, and and that's quantified by some results, isn't it?
3: Yes, lots of results. Olympic gold medal, uh, Tour de France tested for the last seven seasons, Mm -hmm. so lots of results.
0: Now, when I tested the Orca last year, one of the things that I noted, and I think the listeners will, will remember that I talked about this, it was a very stiff bike, climbing hills, sprinting, you know, starting from a stoplight or, or standing start. This thing moved. But I think if there was one complaint, if you will, that I might have had, it was that for somebody like me, who's more of a long distance, a century kind of a rider, not necessarily a racer, love the stiffness, but... I felt like uh, I was getting a little bit of vibration. How have you addressed that in the new Orca?
3: Well, as the Orca has evolved over the last eight years, we've always had the goal of increasing stiffness and reducing weight. And in 2010, we think we hit the pinnacle of stiffness for a carbon race bike. So now the project was how can we take this level of stiffness on a bike and make the bike ride, ride better? So in the 2011 Orca, we've introduced a new technology called Attraction, Attraction is a feature designed on the front fork, the rear seat stays and the rear chain stays, where we've done as as the tube shape leaves the dropout, the tube takes a twist and then is realigned to a new path to the rider. And by disturbing the vibration, we're able to maintain the same level of stiffness as a current orca in the market and reduce the amount of Vibration coming to the rider thus making A smoother riding but equally High performance bicycle
0: So really taking All the best parts of an orca And just making it even better a better Feel a better ride for The owner exactly Profile for me if you Would the typical Orca owner What kind of a rider Is going to want to go After an orca
3: Orca has and always will be designed for pro tour level racing. Uh, So in every aspect of cycling in America, Orca is designed for the competitive rider in mind. So at Centuries, at local bike races for people that want the highest performance bike in the market, uh, but not necessarily. They don't have to race the bike. They just want the very best, the very lightest, the very fastest, and the very best riding
0: and what kind of a price point can people expect on a on an Orca in, say, 2011?
3: In 2011, Orca is going to be available at two levels. The gold level that I've shown you here today will have a retail price of $3,500 for the frame set. There will be a silver level also introduced, which will have a retail price of $2,500 for the frame set. So the Orca is now going to become the new family of upper-end bicycles for Orbea. So we'll be able to have complete bikes from the $4,000 price point, all the way to $12,000.
0: Okay, so your silver level, extremely affordable for a bike with the kind of technology and the kind of history that Orbea has, even in in the short amount of time that Orbea has been on the scene. What's the difference between the gold and the silver?
3: Carbon layup is the main difference. Mm -hmm. The silver level is going to use a little bit more of the mid-modulus carbon fiber, still using a small percentage of the high mod, a little bit more uh, of a simple paint job, where the gold level has a lot of exposed beautiful carbon fiber, the servo level will have a little bit more paint. There's a 150-gram weight difference as well. But the identical look coming out of the same mold and the same technologies in both models.
0: Wow. Now, one of the things that I noticed when I walked in, uh, difference in the bottom bracket, difference in the head tube. Tell
3: me about that. BB30 technology in the bottom bracket. That's now the standard in the industry. And a new tapered head tube, which has an inch and an eighth in the top and an inch and a half on the bottom. Also, Increasing the stiffness and the performance of the front end.
0: Now, one of the things that you were also mentioning to me earlier was the new cable routing that yes. you're planning for 2011.
3: The gold-level bike will be available two ways. It'll be available as a DI2 internal, which will have a $4,000 retail for the frame, or a external mechanical um, system where we use DCR, direct cable routing technology, which is a co-development with Gore running Gore-Tex cables through a very sleek and simple, low-friction, low-maintenance way. Also, it lends itself to a very clean design where the cable is external but is really hidden in the design.
0: Now, typically, I ask people, you know, tell me where uh, folks can find more information about Orbea, but I think there's a special way for people who own iPhones. Tell me about that.
3: There is. We're proud to announce that our iPhone application launched about three months ago. Mm Uh, We're amazed at the amount of users we already have on it, so please go to iTunes and download the Orbea app. It's completely free. Uh, There you can see every activity going on with Orbea globally, what we're doing at the bike races, what we're doing inside of our dealerships. Uh, You can see our full catalog, and coming later this fall, we're going to have the new second generation of made-to-order, which will be the most entertaining and high-tech way to custom build your bike, period. Uh, and you're also mentioning your GPS dealer locator GPS dealer wherever you are you can hit this button and it will show you anywhere in the world the closest Orbea dealers to you excellent now what if people
0: are out and they're they're experiencing their orbea and they want to share some of that experience can they do that through the iphone app
3: that's in version 2 okay so we we're now we're now we're signing people up but absolutely the plan is to be able for people to upload photos upload their experiences and and talk to us through this application
0: now the majority of fredcast listeners are you know really high end roadies but they've all got their mountain bikes as well and orbea really has some amazing technology when it comes to mountain bike. So we're talking to Jordan now. Jordan, tell me, from your perspective, what it is that uh, Orbea's got over the competition in mountain bike technology.
4: Oh, it would have to be racing heritage. Um, you know, Orbea has been producing World Cup results for years and years and years on our, uh, on our carbon bikes, on our aluminum bikes. Um, I think that... Uh, some of the exciting new stuff we're working on is a little bit more, maybe American racing or a little bit of a more of an American vibe with the 29-inch wheel. Orbea was the first company to introduce a production monocoque carbon 29er, mm-hmm. and that was the Alma, and I think we launched that at Sea Otter in 2006, 2005, correction. So we've been in it from the very beginning, um, and the exciting new project here is the reintroduction of the Alma 29 um, using... A lot of the things that, like Tony was saying about the Orca, you know, we've learned a lot of things about uh, how to make these bikes ride better and uh, get lighter and get stiffer, and shift better, and uh, that's a culmination in this new bike over here.
0: So, So take me through some of the, just quickly, some of the features of this new bike. And and by the way, you know, it's funny. Years ago, you know, maybe five years ago, people would have said, "Wow, 29 inches. Is that really a fad? Is it something that's going to last?" But from your perspective, as a racer, as a rider, this is something that's here to stay, isn't it?
4: Well, yeah, it was a risk at the time. I think that people kind of wondered what we were doing, and I think we kind of wondered if we were doing the right thing. But uh, even though we only launched it in one size, it was a fantastic test, and, you know, it's been extremely popular. Um, So, yeah, I I really think that it has an application for lots of riders out there, Um, especially people who might be interested in the Orca. Uh, The 29er has a really great feel for road riders who may not do a lot of mountain bike riding, don't really like the twitchy feel of the smaller wheel. The big wheel gets that flywheel going, and you feel like you're uh, really kind of just motoring along. What are some of the features of this bike over your competition? Well, like the Orca, this frame uses a size-specific nerve so that we get the same kind of feel in the small size that we do in the larger sizes. Um, This bike is available in three sizes now Um, because basically, yeah, you you don't want to have a bike that's considered horrendously stiff for smaller riders, or a noodle if you're a taller rider. Mm-hmm. So this, this carbon layup changes, and these wall thicknesses and tube sizes change depending on the size. Get, oh, go ahead. Right ahead. Um, again, there's this four-point triangle concept, which is unique to our mountain bike frames. But um, it really kind of has a genesis in the attraction project with the Orca, too. It's all about uh, dispersing vibration, mm-hmm. keeping the back wheel tracking ground, properly, um, and uh, just kind of creating a, a, a more rigid platform that resists torque. Um, these, the way these frames are, the way this is set up, this being a wider junction here mm-hmm. actually makes this whole end torsionally more stiff. So we're looking at the rear triangle, and specifically the junction you're talking about is the seat stay and the chain stay. Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, also on this frame, we've uh, dramatically increased the height but narrowed and widened the, the, uh, the chainstays to allow for larger tires, mm-hmm. more mud clearance, no need for a brace in there. This is also BB30, mm-hmm. which has become very popular on uh, mountain bikes as well for exactly the same reasons it's popular on road. It allows us to have a bigger interface, bigger bearings, you know, just stiffer area, bigger canvas to work with.
0: And I see that you're using that, the same uh, exterior cable routing technology on this bike as well.
4: Sure. Actually, DCR was developed with the, with the 26-inch version of this frame. Um, I mean, perhaps even more convenient on a mountain bike because you uh, don't have any place in this entire system for uh, water to get in. Um, it's, it makes everything smoother, and it lasts longer in those grimy climates.
0: What kind of a price point are we talking about for this, again, sexy-looking mountain bike?
4: Well, the frame, I think, is 17.99, And then I'm not sure, Tony, if you've worked out— Okay, so
0: we will be releasing the, the yep. pricing soon. Uh, besides the iPhone app, where can people get more information on Orbea?
3: Orbea.com.
0: Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you so much for introducing me to the new 2011 line for Orbea.
3: Thank you very much. You. Pleasure.
0: Now, we talked during the interview about the new Orbea iPhone app. And if you're looking for that, I do have a link in the show notes. Again, this is Fredcast episode number 161. Now, that's just a taste of what we did at Press Camp last week. I will have many more interviews to come over the next couple of shows. There's just too much content to get into one show. We're going to be spreading it out for you. That's going to do it for this week's episode of The Fredcast. I want to thank our sponsors of this week's show, EpicPlanet.tv with their Epic Ride series and their newest video. Don't forget, go to www.thefredcast.com and click on the Epic Planet link on the right hand side of the page and make sure that you use that promo code Texas for your $5 discount on their latest release going through the Texas hill country. And of course, we always want to thank our generous sponsor, Jensen USA. Go to jensenusa.com. They've got their July 4th sale going on right now by going to jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast. And we thank all of our sponsors for their support. And we also thank you for your donations to the Fredcast. And of course, your donations to the Multiple Sclerosis Society by going to tinyurl.com slash Fred's Against MS. If you'd like to keep in touch with everything that's going on with The Fredcast, don't forget to follow us on Twitter. The name is Fredcast or on Facebook, facebook.com Fredcast. The website, of course, is www.thefredcast.com. And if you'd like to send an email, it's thefredcast at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to send an audio comment, call 661-513-FRED. That's 661-513-3733. Well, there's just one thing left to do in this episode of the Fredcast, and that's present you with this week's Podsafe Cycling Music. And this week's Podsafe Cycling Music comes to us from Music Alley at music.mevio.com. That's formerly the Podsafe Music Network, and it was chosen specifically for the Fredcast by the Cadence Revolution, your weekly podcast of Podsafe Music that's perfect for your indoor cycling. And that's available at www.cadencerevolution.com. Dot com this week's Podsafe cycling music is called no one's gonna make me tuck my shirt in and it's by the statler project and there are links in the show notes to where you can find the statler project and the song on itunes we'll be back next week with another episode of the fredcast including an update on the tour de france i can't wait for the prologue and for the next three weeks my dvr is set my my alarm clock is set and of course I've got my iPhone app as well, so I don't think I'll be missing it. I hope you won't miss it either. As always, thank you so much for listening to the Fredcast. Thanks for staying subscribed, for supporting our sponsors, for telling your friends about the Fredcast, and just in general, for being there and a part of the Fredcast community. We'll be back very, very soon with another episode. But between this show and the next, enjoy the music, but most of all, enjoy the ride.